Today's episode is brought to you by public.com, an investing platform which you'll be hearing more about later on in the show. But for now, let's get into today's interview. Super glad to welcome for the first time on Forward Guidance, Roger Hurst, uh, the managing editor of Real Vision Creative Studios and the macro editor at Lycaon Research. Uh, I worked with Roger when I was uh, at, at Real Vision and Roger, it's, it's great to talk to you again. How have you been? I've been very well indeed. Thank you very much. Yeah, all good. How are you? I'm, I'm doing well. We've got a lot to talk about, uh, Roger. We're recording the afternoon of February 2nd. Yesterday, the Federal Reserve uh, met, re- reported its interest rate increase, its moderation. Uh, today, the European Central Bank, as well as the Bank of England, where you were located, they uh, followed uh, in step. What were your broad conclusions of that? Because the, the market is, is absolutely rip-roaring, whatever you want to talk about, stocks, bonds, everything. The bar was very, very high for the Fed to be super bearish in terms of, you know, all my hawkishness. What they delivered was what was anticipated. But I think people wanted them to kind of say, yeah, but we're really still going to go. Yeah, we've done, you know, we're down to 25, but we're going to keep with 25 and we're going to keep going until we properly see a cap. And we know that we've got the inflation genie back in the bottle. And that seemed to set the tone for both the ECB and the Bank of England, who did what was expected, but also sort of. Rather than said, this is an absolute certainty, they said, well, there's a little bit more uncertainty. And, and I think from, particularly from the Fed, from Powell, is he had an opportunity to say, I'm going to nail financial conditions. I want them to tighten still. When he's given that question, he was a little bit sort of, well, you know, they've, they've, he actually argued that they'd been flatlining since December. They have softened a lot. Um, and financial conditions have basically made things a lot better, you know, with markets rallying and bond yields having fallen. That means financial conditions have improved. But it just seemed they were a little bit sort of, oh, you know, things may be coming our way. So I guess the question that a lot in the market are saying is, is this like Burns of the 1970s? Is this where they kind of find themselves making a mistake in that the inflation tiger is still out there and prowling and could start mauling us again 12 months down the line? Right. And how quickly, uh, how closely, I should say, do you think the European Central Bank and the Bank of England follow the Federal Reserve? And how closely do, you know, uh, well-informed financial people like yourself in, in Europe and UK are following following the Fed? Are people paying more attention to the Fed than they are to the Bank of England? Or what does it look like? Yeah, I mean, the Bank of England, you know, had its moment in the sunshine, but it wasn't a good moment. It was sort of a moment of darkness in the sunshine. It was a stability issue and they came out and fixed the stability. It was the instability they fixed pretty quickly. So they did a good job. Um, You know, it was a little bit touch and go for a while. Um, I mean, what, you know, what what people are thinking here is, or do people follow this? Absolutely. But it's the Fed that really matters. And, you know, everything seems to be sort of the US has been leading and everyone's following with a lag. But Pretty much everywhere, you can see these inflation numbers have been rolling over with base effects because, you know, you can see it in the PPI numbers, which in Europe particularly had gone into stratospheric levels. They've been rolling over, headline CPI is rolling over, core CPI is rolling over. And it seems that the pivots that we've got, for instance, in Europe on the Euribor curve is about um, three months behind. So September versus June, July for the OIS SOFA um, funding curve in the US, the one that's replaced the euro dollar curve. Right. And those curves, uh, I don't, I, at least in America, are pricing in a fall in interest rates, which is different than what the Federal Reserve indicated it would do in its uh, December uh, dot plot. 
so there's a disconnect there. Journalists at yesterday's Fed meeting attempted to get Powell to comment on that, resolve the, the uh, disconnect there, but he seemed very reluctant. He kind of dodged a question. What are your thoughts on the uh, cut in interest rates that's priced into the market, not only going out to the 2023, about two cuts priced in for Feds or Fed funds, uh, or seven and eight going out till uh, 2024, very inverted curve. Um, what does that say to you? And uh, how does that influence your views about a potential recession? So this is, um, you know, I came into this year saying, you know, I have more uncertainty than I've had for a long time, because there are um, three or four completely divergent paths that are all plausible. And you know, you're, a lot of people say, oh, that one's ridiculous or that one's ridiculous. But you could make a super bearish case and a super bullish case. And and then you look at you know, the fixed income market. And even that seems inconsistent in that you've got this pivot. So and I think of a pivot as being a reversal in interest rates. And that mm-hmm. pivot is set currently for June or July of 2023, which means interest rates go up and then they get cut very, very dramatically or very, very quickly after that. And I think that a lot of people in the market actually think that we won't get a pivot which sees rates cut, but we'll get a plateau. So rates will go up 5, 5.25%, which is where the dot plot currently is, and then they'll stay there. So that seems a little bit strange. The market is, I'm not sure whether the market is being overly pessimistic about growth and therefore it thinks the cuts come because we get recession, which has sort of been the base case. Or is it that the market's been overly optimistic that the Fed will react to any wobbling growth by cutting rates immediately and therefore ward off the worst of the recession. But the problem is that then when you look in the bond market, now bond yields have fallen, but positioning in bond markets is super, super short. It's one of the shortest it's ever been, particularly in the two-year space, even adjusted for open interest. So it feels like there is, the Fed says we're raising and then we're plateauing, which probably justifies, um, you know, probably justifies this short in the bond market because it feels like if you do plateau, then yields at 4.2% may have to creep back up towards that 5% if we lock ourselves at 5 But then there's this belief that the Fed will be reactive. And I think this is this optimistic view where I think the rates market, at least the funding market, has been wrong with this pivot. And we can actually see that in that the rates market itself started off with the pivot in, you know, when you go back to September, that pivot was in February, March. And what's happened is that the pivot has just moved out, moved out, moved out. It's now in June, July. But we've kept the pivot, but it's been wrong. The timing wise has been wrong. So the timing keeps on shifting. And I think that is an element that, um, you know, is that uncertainty. We went from complete certainty last year of we're going to get a recession to this now view where is it recession delayed or is it no recession? Do we avoid a recession? Because actually inflation's coming down. Unemployment is still tight, might not be strong. Um, and if inflation drops quickly enough and wage inflation doesn't pick up, could we avoid a recession? Mm. So if you, if you yeah, if we look at that curve and we, we can put it on screen, um, that about 50 points of cuts are priced till the end of December. But how wide is the band of, of distributions? Uh, as I mean, we can you know look at the options prices, which I, you know, I, I don't understand at all. But but I want, I want to hear your view. Is it sort of 50 basis points of cuts being priced because they think you know, there's one possibility that they will cut by, by two times, two uh, quarter point hikes, and that's 100%? Or is it 50 basis of cuts being priced because they're pricing in uh, you know, 150 of, of hikes and then 200 of cuts, and then you merge those together, and that's minus 50? So I'm going to, I'm going to use the Fed funds um, curve, which is um, 
sort of implied um, interest rates, implied Fed funds target rate. And it currently is around about 95. And the way they work is 100 minus 95 equals 5%. So it currently has that pivot, that sort of peak in rates around about that 5% in the end of H2 2023. And then you get this cut all the way back down to around about 97. So 200 basis points of cuts. I think on the SOFA curve, the overnight interest swap curve, um, it's down to around about 96.75. So you know, you get about, you know, you get 3.75%, so 2.75%, 3%, somewhere around there. So 200 basis points of cuts priced in over the next 18 months. Now, obviously, that's nowhere near where we were before, which was 1%, zero bound, etc. So when you actually think about it in that context, yes, these are cuts, but they're cuts to 3%, which is significantly higher than where we were um, at the end of the previous cutting cycles. But it's still quite an impressive move and it feels, or that's an impressive expectation. And if we don't rapidly roll off into a reasonably severe recession, when I say severe, with quite a lot of unemployment picking up, then that rate cutting cycle looks a little bit optimistic in the short run. And this is why it keeps on that pivot point, keeps on getting pushed out. Optimistic in one way, rates are too high, forward rates are too high or too low? I think basically forward rates are too low because it expects the cut to come very, very soon, which either means we're going to get a big recession right here, right now, very, very soon, or it's a case that the the market expects the Fed to do something they've never done before, which is see a little bit of a growth wobble and suddenly switch from worrying about price to then going, we are going to support growth back at any cost, which is what they did for the previous decade prior to the end of uh, 2021. It feels like, I actually call that optimistic. People might say it's pessimistic. I, it's, that rate cut is pricing quite a severe recession. I think it's actually pricing in a reversal and a pivot in anticipation of slowing growth from the Fed. At the moment, when you look at a lot of the data, yes, we see things like ISM 47 towards recessionary level. But something to point out on things like ISM. ISM at 47 is historically at a recessionary level when you've got unemployment picking up. It's been to 47 on many other occasions since 1960. Only once did it get to 47 with unemployment at a high level without going into recession. That was 2003. So it was the aftermath of a recession. We've been to 47 before, but when unemployment had stayed low, you've not had a recession. The one factor that you get in all the recessions since the 19, since the war is that unemployment was going up quite dramatically. And Unemployment is prone to revisions. Unemployment is notoriously difficult to analyze because it's so backward looking. And with the monumental discrepancies, not discrepancies, but distortions caused by COVID, which will take years to work through the system, it's incredibly hard to decide whether we've already started to see a big pickup in unemployment, or actually this is a tight labor market without being a strong labor market. And we might end up seeing unemployment levels stay relatively low, yet. We don't see that wage inflation coming through, i.e. that Phillips curve, the inverse relationship between low unemployment and high inflation, like it was pre-COVID. Is it still dead? It feels that way. Right. The Federal Reserve cares about the labor market. They care about unemployment and the the PMI, the ISM, they could be at 42. But if the unemployment rate is still 3.5%, they're not cutting rates. Uh, What are the arguments that you encounter about why the labor market is so uh, tight in the US? And which of them do you agree with? Which of them do you you disagree with? And and why? So um, 
The, the I think the principal one is COVID distortions took a lot of older people out of the market. They retired early. So that participation rate fell dramatically and it's still currently one percentage points below where it was prior to COVID. So you had a lot of people left the market. So although I think a lot of people lost jobs last year, because so many people left the labor market, there were these openings. And even today, you still see, you know, jolts, job openings just popped back up again. Now, it's a bit of an abomination of a number because I can basically put my job advert in 10 papers. and That probably counts as 10 job openings, but it's just one. But nonetheless, those job openings are still historically relatively high versus the total number of people who would like to have a job. So the unemployed. So there is that, that tightness. But at the same time, whilst wages have been going up, real wages have been relatively subdued. So this is why I say labour or the jobs market looks tight, but it's not strong because we're not seeing labour coming out and going, we're getting inflation beating wage increases. Some parts of the public sector are, and we're starting to see this happening, particularly in the UK. But overall, it's not been, you know, way, we've not seen inflation busting wage increases yet. And if we do see unemployment picking up, then that will probably won't happen. But the thing that would probably be the, the, sort of the surprise for me is that let's say we got unemployment staying relatively tight, but wage inflation not picking up and CPI rolling over, we'll get a reflationary impulse, particularly because as CPI drops and wages stay relatively constant, you start to get positive real wages, positive spending. But that would be a scenario which would suggest that Fed the central bankers could be making a policy error in pausing and plateauing too soon, or at least pivoting as the market expects. A plateau to wait and see what's going to go on and take a look and then things come in and go, right, we're going to go 25, we're going to go 25. That I think is is you know, probably the right way to go about it. But at the moment, you know, this is still a tight labour market. And historically, these are the sorts of levels of low unemployment where you would worry about wage inflation. But it's not been a wage inflation spiral. This is not the 1970s. This is not institutionalized, embedded, unionized labor that can go out there and punch their employers. At the moment, employers are still more powerful than employees. And I think that that might buy the Fed some time. It certainly could surprise. Um, but, you know, so we've got to look for revisions in the unemployment data. There are some figures that look like they're starting to turn, but it's got to turn pretty quickly for this to become a recession right here, right now. Right. Okay. So uh, consumer spending in, in the US and probably elsewhere uh, fell off a cliff as inflation was so high last year uh, because they say, oh my God, the, the, these items that I used to buy now cost so much more, but inflation has fallen. So as you say, uh, now now people's uh, incomes are, are, are worth more relative to the, what they were, let's say, six months ago. And in yesterday's Fed meeting, Jay Powell said exactly that. He actually said, you know, pretty much the exact quote that he expects consumer uh, sentiment to pick up. Also, you you referenced job openings. That was a key feature that Jay Powell, Fed chair, focused on last year. And even as he said, oh yes, the rate of inflation is falling, but job openings is still over 10 million. So this indicates immense slack in the labor market. So that was a non-inflation feature that if it remained high would cause the Fed to be hawkish. He pretty much dismissed that yesterday. And that that uh, very much um, um, took, took me by surprise. Um, but you know, Roger, as you know, recessions can start when the unemployment rate is is low and sometimes very low, sometimes, uh, you know, three and a half percent. There have been recessions that started with with uh, unemployment lower than, than where it is now. So we've got an inverted yield curve. We've got uh, unemployment 
low. We've got unemployment low, but tons of announcements of, of layoffs. We've got corporate profits rolling over. Uh, financial conditions really easy for some reason. Uh, I want to you know hear what what you think about that. Um, oh, and by the way, those those uh, interest rate hikes they act with long and variable lags, so they likely won't take effect you know in, into the, the few months. So. Uh, I created an immense sort of doomsday scenario. Uh, I want to hear what you think about it. We, to, to what degree do you agree with it? And then, and then, you know, what's what's your pushback on on this all this reflation? I mean, there are all those things. It's like the, there's the absolute certainty of recession based on all that. And you know, we saw consumer sentiment at the lowest level it's ever been. You have never had consumer sentiment that low since 1954 without a recession. That was last year. We saw the optimism outlook for small businesses, NFIB small business optimism outlook, the lowest level it's ever been. You've never been that low without a recession. This is something that Lizanne Saunders, um, who's regular on Twitter, was saying is that, and this might be something that, that helps us, which is, is this a rolling recession? So I argued last year, I said, oh, it feels like a recession. This was quite early last year. And then I was saying, but it's not a recession because, and Here's my plagiarism coming to the fore. I've forgotten who it was who said it, but the NBER, they want a recession is, is duration. So it's got to be quite long. It's got to be diffuse, hits all parts of the economy. Um, and it's got to be, so it's duration, diffusion, and um, one other was starting with D and I've forgotten it. But basically deep, long, and hitting everything. Deep, duration, something like that. Anyway, so we had a lot of those things coming in, but if it hits... Yeah households first and then they get to recover because they adjust and they've got time and the savings were coming through small businesses and then they adjust you get recessions in pockets but you don't get recessions altogether and we have been so used to over the last 20 years particularly over the last 10 of everything happening in quick time covid banged in banged out 2018 yes it wasn't a recession but it happened very very quickly 2015, we had a couple of sudden shocks in the equity market around a global profits recession. And even 2008 was a slow burning recession that then suddenly everything imploded around Lehman in Q3 and Q4 of 2008. But it was, again, very, very rapid. Last year was a price shock. It was a very, very shallow decline in GDP, but unemployment stayed robust throughout that. So it wasn't diffuse. And I think this is potentially where the risk lies. And also we have this window now and, and something that I felt was a potential is that the lag from interest rate hikes is probably 12 months plus. So it's H2 of this year. And if that's the case, then we might have this rebound window right now where we get a bit of reflation. And in the here and now, we want that trade. And that creates the false sense of security, but it also might force the Fed to act again. And something that I've said throughout last year is that each time the market bounces, because we think the Fed's going to pivot, the Fed is less likely to pivot. The more that you know things look good, the more the Fed can come in and hike rates. And you may recall that in the last decade, particularly from 2015 to 2017, the Fed always wanted to get rates off the zero bound or at least raise them higher so that when the recession eventually came, they had something to cut. Why would they now go, OK, unless we get a really deep recession, why would they now go, we're going to cut rates? if we're not going to have a recession. And if we're not going to have a recession, then bond yields aren't going to fall that much further. Again, why would they? Because if we don't have a recession, we have growth. If we have growth, then you have upward pressure on prices in terms of inflation, potentially downward pressure on bonds and higher yields. So again, it goes to, is the labor market going to deteriorate quickly enough in the next few months, particularly the next quarter, to be able to 
uh, justify the pivot that's currently priced into the um, funding markets. And yeah, it, it, we could have these revisions because we don't really know about COVID and those revisions coming through. But it has to start happening right here, right now. And to your point, recessions nearly always happen when unemployment is at its lowest point. So 3.3, I think in the 1950s, it got to 2.2 and we went into recession with, yeah, uh, it, yeah it's a two handle. And we went into a recession there. But remember, these guys, they always say the recession started there a year later. So MBER will tell us sometime in 2024 right. the recession started, there, which is why we now need to sort of go, OK, we're using unemployment, which is the least reliable, most lagging, hardest to interpret, most prone to revision data point to try and work out whether this is now a true recession. And again, that's something which in 12 months time, we might look back and go, oh, unemployment was way through 4% in the first half of, of Q1, but we didn't know it at the time. So I think, Roger, you've done a great job of laying out the various uh, cases and the various scenarios. What do you think? What is your base case? And how are you sort of weighing the probabilities for 2023? So I still um, think that we'll get a recession, but I think it's more H2. And I'm increasing now going, well, could it be 2024? Now, I don't want to be in that camp of the person who goes, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. But I am in the camp that if it doesn't come, then the risks of a rebound in some of the inflationary numbers increases. And yes, tight labor will eventually become strong labor and that will force the Fed. But that's why I think that the Fed continues hiking to 5%, maybe 5.25%, but plateaus. So I think the pivot is unlikely unless we get a very rapid deterioration in unemployment. But I still think we get that recession because of the lag effect. And, and you know, you can see this in pretty much everything in that you take the UK where obviously interest rates, mortgages are tied to spot interest rates. And so as those interest rates have gone up and they went up 50 basis points, 4%, floating uh, mortgages are already impacted. So a third, roughly, of UK mortgages are floating. So they've been impacted. So it's hurting those people. A third are two-year fixed. So we're halfway through, probably more now, uh, they're starting to hurt. But then the last third of five-year fixed. So it's not really going to impact them for a while. So it impacts with the lag. In the US, as you know better than me, if I don't move house and I was on my mortgage two years ago, no problem. But if I want to move because there's a better job in Texas than in New York, then I'm kind of thinking you know, could be a could be a hit to my higher pay, could get a hit to my costs from the mortgage. So there is that slowdown element that could come through. And then, you know, overall funding, I think what we saw was a very successful effort from, in some ways, from the um, from the central banks is that did they give, you know, by delaying and everyone goes, that we're too late. Did they just give everyone time, particularly corporates, to actually roll their funding when it was still low before the Fed started putting up those funding rates? So maybe they bought time. Maybe this is why it's delayed, but it's still going to hit home. The rate of change was quite dramatic. And it, I think that that recession was still here. But I think there's this window where we could be surprised. And, you know, we've had a couple of days now with the equity market surprising with its breakout. I think that could continue. We could get some more reflationary elements in the same way that we did at the beginning of 2022. But something I've said before is that this is inflation rather than reflation. This is not organic growth. We haven't been in an economy of organic true growth for the best part of 20 years since dot com. It's either been leverage or it's been, you know, cheap month funding from the Fed post great financial crash. Take that away. 
There is no organic self-sustaining growth in this economy. It needs the juice. So reflation to me would be a risk of higher rates because the underlying system is still relatively weak. Underlying growth is still anemic. Inflation adjusted, it's poor. Yes, and uh, be because we have so much debt, I frequently encounter the argument that corporations have so much debt, they can't possibly handle higher rates. Governments have so much debt, they can't possibly handle higher rates. You know, if, if I'm a company and I've, I've borrowed a billion dollars that I have to pay back in, in 2023 this year in, in June, and uh, I, I borrowed it when, in, when the risk-free rate was at zero, and now it's at 5.25%. That's a tough pill for me to swallow, and it's a tough pill for the you know, U.S. government to, to, to swallow. However, I feel like the transpirings of last year, the rapid rise of the interest rates, is at least for a short term, uh, proves that th that argument that that you can rates can be high uh, for a while. And I also want to ask you the, 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 about uh, if people can refinance at such low rates, and the duration is so long. You know, I was looking at a company's balance sheet. Uh, recently, I forget, I forget which one, and you know, like ninety percent of their rates of their uh, of their borrowings was fixed rate debt, and so much of it was you know past twenty twenty five in going out to 2040, 2050, 2062. So if everyone borrowed money at, at you know three percent because interest rate was zero and you pay a three hundred basis point spread, you know if people borrowed at three percent due in twenty sixty two. The, the bondholders who lent them the money, they're screwed because interest rates are, are rising, but uh, the, the borrowers are, are doing pretty well. So, so what does that, we know what the uh, refinance crisis looks like when everyone has to refinance and rates are higher. We know what that looks like. What does it look like when perhaps, you know, if, if, if you're right, and I, I think um, def definitely it's a phenomenon, everyone has borrowed at, at ultra low rates. They don't have to pay back for a long time. Yeah, I, I, it buys time. I mean, I think this is the the issue is that, you know, I talked about, you know, Last year was the year of bonds behaving badly. We had the worst bond sell-off since the late 1700s. And, um, but for a lot of people, you know, if you are just turned pensioner, you've just retired, it's a nightmare. Potentially, a lot of the people who came out of the workforce due through COVID might feel that they now no longer have the right sort of pension pot. But for me, I've still got a, hopefully a few years through retirement yet. Um, it's kind of that, it's like, oh God, I know my pension pot has taken a hit. But it takes a hit for when I retire in a number of years' time. It's not impacting me right here, right now. So that bond market move for a lot of people is um, is a future cost. And the rise in interest rates for a lot of people is a future cost. What we had last year was a price shock. And it was a price shock for financial markets, which have to kind of you know, price everything off the forward curve. And interest rates have gone up. So we repriced discount rates, equities. Equities saw um, multiple compression. And... That's what we got, a price shock that nearly looked like a recession because we got, you know, real growth did drop for a couple of quarters. I think the true growth shock is still ahead of us. Um, and I think we have to be prepared for that. So it kind of goes into, you know, what's your time frame? Short term, you know, I don't want to be too bearish right here. And back end of last year, I was going, I think this is the sort of recession which might need the Fed to push us into recession by surprising people with higher rates. Which is why maybe it's a little bit surprising to hear Jay Powell not bothered about the loosening of financial conditions. But maybe if the Phillips curve is dead and there is no pricing power from wages uh, or from labor, then actually that buys yet more time as well. So it feels like, you know, what we've seen is we've gone from recession being the base case. And it's still the base case for a lot of people 
but it's been marching from being a deepish recession to a shallow recession to a lot more people now saying um, no recession. So basically moving towards, I know you, you probably know Juliet de Klerk's view, which is she was back in last year saying, I think there could be a surprise here, soft landing, and we don't get the the, the bust that people think. People have moved to that. And you heard it from Jamie Dimon. He went, it's going to be a nightmare. Oh, it's going to be a soft recession. <laughs> more and more people now saying soft landing. And this is what I mean. There are These are all plausible outcomes. Um, and you can make a very, very good case for the bearish view and the bullish view. And I think, unfortunately, we all have to be prepared for both materialising. Um, I mean, it's, God, it's so sitting on the fence. But, you know, I, I felt confident last year, but this year coming into it, I can see some very good cases, but, and this is where it becomes difficult, is a lot of the bullish cases on equities are because the expected recession would drive yields down, pushing equities up. But actually what we're seeing now is that the bull case for equities, because we don't get a recession, which means bond yields probably don't go anywhere, but you get growth pushing equities up. Those are kind of, you know, the, the end result in equities was the same, but they're mutually kind of exclusive arguments. Um, and that's where I think a lot of the problems come through is a lot of people who've been right have been right for reasons they didn't expect. And and that's where it, it's it's the struggle in terms of how we position ourselves. But I feel that we haven't avoided a recession. And what I think is we transition from a price shock to a growth shock. And there's that window in between, which I think we're in now, where it could feel like things are, are actually quite good. But it might mean that therefore people push prices back up and the Fed has to go, oh, no, sorry. We're going to go again and we're going to go again. But they're in the window uh, of of joy at the moment. And that is where the markets have been. Right. Yeah. Juliet has absolutely nailed it at a time when everyone was very bearish on markets as well as the economy. She was calling for a soft landing and the price action as well as the economic data since then has only con consisted her view. So I hope to have her back soon. And I, I definitely will be rolling out the red carpets. Uh, although I think it's kind of a transitory soft landing. Uh, people are calling it transitory Goldilocks. You know, not, not my term. Well, um, it's, and it's, I think it's, it's, it's really not a soft landing. Because soft landing implies that the economic cycle is over, that you've landed the plane. But really, it's more like there is going to be a hard landing, but the plane is in the sky. It's sort of circling the sky. And uh, there's not a lot of there's 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 no hurricane. It's it's clear uh, it's, no clouds. It's a clear sky. It's absolutely it's that fear. And you know this is a, the part of the problem that we all have. Central bankers have it. I have it. You know, and whether you believe this is 1940s inflation, which was because of dislocations, supply chain dislocations post war, or is it 1970s inflation, which was that institutionalized um, em embedded inflation? You had peaks, three consecutive peaks on both of them. And, you know, that, remember that big battle, is this transitory or not? Well, if in two years time, we look back and it went up to 9.1% in the US and back down to two, it was transitory. But when you're living it for the two years, it's not transitory because that's how it feels. So the central bankers and, and the Fed will be aware of that. And this is where I guess the risk is, is that do, you know, they're the zookeeper that left the inflation tiger out. It mauled a few people, but because it was a zoo animal, it went back to its cage overnight. But have the zookeeper locked the cage? Was the door still flapping open for the tiger to come out and maul some more people? So is the Fed the zookeeper that has locked the cage? Do they think it's locked? Or is it a case of they've got to lock it, and that means eventually they might need to drive those financial conditions higher? At the moment, they said, we're fine. Is that because they feel that labor doesn't have the wage power that it's had before? And that could be, could be the case. 
Yeah, wow. Uh, that, that's I couldn't help but smile hearing that that metaphor. I, I would love it if you were the Bank of England so I could listen to you. <laughs> Who would want to be a central banker? I mean, theirs is a hiding to hell. I mean, the easiest thing in, in this game is to knock central bankers, but the hardest thing for a central banker to ever do is the right thing because markets always think they're right and it's, they've not done enough. They've done too much. That's the lot of the central banker. A central banker... They can't create a recession when there's no recession to prevent inflation. They have to wait for inflation, then go, oh, we'll do it. What is it? Someone said they're the Humpty Dumpty thing. They, they let the market break and they put it back together. They don't smash it first in anticipate. So, yeah, they always, they've always got the bad lot. Right. And they're, they're uh, sort of set up to be too late to hike into a recession and to cut into a boom because they're looking at uh, uh, very backward-looking economic data. However, what are they supposed to do? Say, oh, well, I'm. the reporter says, why are you hiking uh, as unemployment is at 10%? And they're saying, because some some guy on Twitter said that the bond market is telling you to do it. You know, it's just like, what, what else well, do we expect? It'd be, it'd be worse than that. Is Let's say they went, oh, we can see inflation coming, so we're going to raise interest rates right now and cause a recession. When there was no recession on the horizon, the yield curve was not pricing it in. Nothing was pricing recession. People won't go, they were really good, the central bankers, weren't they? Because they created a recession to prevent a worse recession. Everyone would just go, they created a recession out of nothing, the gits. So they can't win yeah. on that front, which is why central bankers and policymakers nearly always have to be reactive rather than proactive. Um, and you know, is that pivot that we're seeing in the funding market an idea that they will be reactive to a recession that's going to happen now? Or is it that we've been hoping that they would be proactive? And it feels like you know, we price this pivot in February to March. They want them to be proactive. And so far, that pivot just gets pushed out. And now it's gone. It's now really kind of going, rates going up, rates coming straight back down. It's like this needle in terms of the, the rate market. If you've been listening to Forward Guidance, you probably know that U.S. Treasury yields surged higher last year. Right now, you can get a 4.8% yield on your cash with Treasury bills. That's pretty good. It's even better than what you get with a traditional high-yield savings account. So owning U.S. Treasuries is great, but buying U.S. Treasuries is super complicated, or at least it was. You used to have to go to a bank or navigate a government website that looked like it was designed in the 90s. Thankfully, investing platform public.com has changed all that with the launch of Treasury accounts. Now you can move your cash into U.S. Treasuries right from your phone. And you can do it with the flexibility of a bank account. There are no minimum hold periods or settlement delays. In other words, you can access your cash whenever you want. And the best part is that because it's government-backed treasury bills, it's an incredibly safe place to park your cash. Public will even automatically reinvest your treasury bills at maturity, so you don't have to do anything to continue growing your yield. So to get that 4.8% on your cash, go to public.com forward slash forward guidance to move your cash into a treasury account today. Thank you, and let's get back to the episode. How does China change your, your view, Roger? So China is that um, another of these great conundrums in that the Pavlovian conditioning everybody has is China commodities. China mm -hmm. comes in with growth, credit, commodities go up. And yes, that was generally true. But then in 2018, uh, it changed. They went from growth at any cost, which is, you know, we build things, we build cities and we then fill them with people to, oh, we've built too many cities. We've got a bit too much leverage. We now need to direct our credit towards shoring up the property sector, maybe even trying a few explosions in the property sector, controlled explosions to see if we can deflate it without destroying things. And you can see this in that, um, you know, the, the credit, you know, 
the credit impulse, it rose dramatically in 2009. Then again, in the European debt crisis. Then again, during the um, commodity industrial profits bust of 2015. And then it was starting to go up in 2019, but it was looking like it was rolling over. And then they had to boost it through COVID because they went back to type, okay, supply side policies to grow everything again, and we'll export to the US where demand demand side policies have come in. Now, I think that, that China will go back to where they were 2018, not where they were 2016. So let's say they had 6% GDP growth. These are not forecasts, just 6% GDP growth, uh, growth at any cost versus 6% GDP growth focused on consumer and shoring up um, the economy have very different implications for global investors. And in 2018, the DAX, big exporter to emerging markets, the supply chain to China, Korea, the KOSPI, big open industrial economy, biggest trade partner, China. They struggled through 2018. Whilst a lot of people said, but they put credit in, this is going to be good. It's because the credit was redirected. And I'm watching Korea because Korea in absolute terms has broken out again um, to the upside. It looks like a reverse head and shoulders on the KOSPI 200. But when I look at Korea versus the DAX, Korea's actually still kind of at the bottom of that ratio. It's underperforming. It tried to break out, but it hasn't. I think Korea is still saying that this is not a super, super grand opening. This is, uh, as with the US, China has gone for services. They've gone for holidays. They are flying. So there should be demand for oil. But they're not going to build loads of buildings. I think they're going to still focus on not allowing their bubble to get even more out of hand. They want to focus on the consumer. Xi has been saying, I want to even the playing field. That's why I attack tech. They dial back. He's listened. And this is something that uh, Jacob Shapiro, who's my partner with like, you know, on the geopolitical side, has said, you know, he's listened and he has stepped back. But is the focus going to be on the growth or is it going to be on supporting uh, a sustainable outlook. And they've gone from growth at any cost to sustainability. When they want all those raw materials, it's because they want to be leaders in things like green technologies rather than they want to build another city in the middle of nowhere and fill it with people. So I think China is a big story, but I think it could disappoint on the pure commodity demand element. I think the commodity story is still on the supply element where there are some dislocations. So China is big. I think it'll be a domestic focus more than it'll necessarily be an international focus. And so, so what are the knock-on effects? So you know, where's the money going? If it's not going to commodities, where's it going? So um, state-owned enterprises, which have got too much debt, look like they're imploding. Um, you know, Evergrande was a classic example where, in another, another example, sorry, where, you know, in the property sector, we all thought that's it. It's going to all end horribly right here, right now, because as investors, we want it to happen. That went off, blew up, didn't look good, stepped back, put money in, credit went in there. They've been using their credit to shore things up. So I think it's a case of instead of going into that unadulterated, pure demand for things that require commodities, they will still demand commodities and coming back into the market, particularly for energy, that's going to have an impact. But what they're doing now is they're saying, look, what we want to do is make sure that we have the, the property sector needs to rebalance. We tried to see if we could deflate it. We couldn't without it causing bigger problems like Evergrande and others. Um, we've done something in tech, but that was more of a rebalancing sort of socially. I think this this credit will still go in there. And if you look at the credit impulse, it looks like it's rolling over at a lower level than the previous four spikes. So again, it looks like, yes, credit's going up. And remember, obviously, as GDP increases, if you don't put in more and more credit, then your actual credit impulse should start to fall relative to where it was. So 100 billion today is worth less than 100 billion 10 years ago when GDP was smaller. So it looks like they're being a little bit more 
focused. And the big mantra has been we want to be going towards sustainability. And you can see 2018, there was a peak in urban fixed asset investment. That's when the, the cycle peaked. It dropped for those two years. That's when Korea, Germany didn't do so well. We now know retrospectively because of that change in focus from China. Pick up again uh, through COVID, probably you know they needed to do something. But it feels like they are you know, that their focus has changed. But we're we're Pavlovianly conditioned, a terrible way of using the word, to China comes in, China buys commodities. They do, but is the rate of change of demand going to be the sort of thing that sustains a super, super, super move in commodities that we got in the early 2000s? I don't think so. But there are going to be certain elements which will do well through all of this. Do you think that the Chinese uh, stock market, which has absolutely exploded higher since October, is accurately pricing in a remarkable stimulus and a, a very loose uh, loosening of financial conditions? Or do you think it's maybe got a little bit ahead of itself? I think that the leaders in, in China are chartists. <laughs> when I say chartists, they look at charts because you can draw a line from the 2000s and, and basically every low touches this line and it touched that line, I think, you know, in the sell-off last year when they were hitting tech and the property bubble was, was getting impacted. And then it sort of bounced off there. It's not got ahead of itself relative to um, any of the other moves. Remember in 2015, 14, 15, it went into sort of bubble-like territory. So it can become excessively speculative. But, you know, we have not rebounded um, you know, a significant rebound relative to where we've come from in a lot of these, particularly the technology stocks. So I don't think it's a um, unfair move. You know, we've been talking about the reopening in China since October. The market bottomed in October. But how much of that was because the dollar peaked in October and reflation and expectations and improvements through better liquidity conditions, financial conditions easing, has helped those emerging markets pretty much across the board. So I think it's fairly commensurate with that. China hasn't massively, massively outperformed necessarily, bounced off a, a big technical level, and there's been other things like the dollar in its favor. Right. Uh, tell us, uh, so your partner at Lycan Research, uh, Jacob Shapiro, focuses a lot on ge geopolitics. You know, I've, I've had him on this program. You're, you're a finance guy. So what do, what are you bringing to, to like you on research and, and what are you focusing on there? What are the big themes? It feels like geopolitics is geopolitics and macro are merging. And, you know, I've always said before, if you try and trade geopolitics, you'll get your ass handed to you. It's almost impossible to trade, particularly trying to find those flashpoints. But the way we look at that is I think it's more politics. So we say geopolitics, but it's more politics, which has a geo geopolitical or geographical element. But what it really is, is that I think we're moving from a world of capital and monetary towards a world of fiscal and labor. This will be a slow shift. But if we move away, so effectively post-war was, was, was labor and it was fiscal. It was supporting post-war. Then Thatcher Reagan, 1980, we went on to free markets and became central banks, monetary and capital in the driving seat. Inequalities appeared. We probably reached, you know, with COVID, uh, before COVID, we're probably reaching the end of that because it was taking more and more debt almost everywhere just to eke out a little bit of GDP. It feels like now we're starting that shift back towards labor and towards fiscal. Now, fiscal is generally much more inflationary. I think the US is limited on that right here, right now. But our thinking here is that if we are moving towards fiscal and labor, edging that way away from, um, from monetary and capital, it's a geopolitical story. And at the same time, if you think globalization is now, not so much globalization ends, but globalization becomes more regional, 
So you get pockets, you get Asia pockets, you get North America with a bit of South America. Then it just realigns things. So there are different elements that start coming into play. Um, and so that's really where, where I think, you know, it's, it's that kind of fiscal element. Is fiscal starting to become the big policy tool of the future? And if that's the case, then you need to look at the politics more because it's now set by governments rather than by central bankers. Central bankers become uh, the puppets, as it were, of, of the politicians, more so than we've seen really over the last 40 years. I think that the case here is that what you get is a move towards um, labor or a move towards the working man or woman, which is itself mm. inflationary because it's the, it's, the, it's the median household spending that causes inflation. If rich people get richer, they, they buy paintings, which doesn't feed through right. to general commodities. But as we saw with COVID, suddenly you give a backhander to everybody and, you know, MT obviously went through the roof, but it's a fiscal handout. Um, that was the inflationary impulse. It wasn't QE. We'd had QE since 2008 to 2020, and it caused asset price inflation, but not true CPI style household inflation of, of a lot of goods. But we got that inflation through the fiscal um, authorities 2020 to 2021. And so if you are empowering the worker, God, I sound like a socialist now, but if you're empowering um, the average household, that becomes more inflation because that's the spending pattern that they have. It's slow burning, though. And I think, again, you know, what we are seeing here is bottlenecks that I think have been the real drivers in higher prices. And I think we've got to be very careful here, which is um, we've had higher prices. Higher prices can be caused by lots and lots of different things. And for me, for you, for my mum and dad, they call higher prices inflation. But you then talk to an economist and inflation is actually a subset of higher prices caused as a monetary phenomena, always and everywhere monetary. The problem is, forget that. Inflation to me, you and everyone is if, if prices go up, if it's VAT going up, that causes me to have less money in my back pocket. To me, that's inflation. It's not true monetary textbook inflation. Forget that. And that's, I think, where we're at is that we've, we've seen higher prices and those higher prices, whether they're caused by bottlenecks, cause pain, a cost of living crisis, the, the average Joe is going to squeal and demand those higher wages. But do they have pricing power? Is that labor market strong and tight or is it just tight, but with weak power in labor? And I think, again, it's, it's a slow burning thing. I don't think labor has a lot of power right here, right now. I think it's still down the road. So without the unionization, and without that structural shift, and I think it's going to be political will, then eventually you'll get that much more ingrained and embedded inflation. But, you know, it's how long is your investment horizon? This inflation story is going to play out probably if it's true, and it becomes fiscal, it's going to play out over many years, because we're trying to put these trades on for the next month or the next two months. And I think that's, that's not the right way to look at it. Yeah. Um... Uh, that, that's interesting. And so if there's all this uh, fiscal stimulus, where is the money coming from? Is it increased taxation? Is it borrowing? If so, who, who's buying it? And yeah, I guess I want to ask you your view on the debt super cycle where everyone says, oh, the debt is 150% of GDP. Therefore, the world's going to collapse. What, what are your views on that? <laughs> um, the world's always going to collapse. I mean, it's I mean, I, this is why I do think that they will try. I mean, this this is the argument everyone uses, which is the Russell Napier view. And I think it's a fair view, which is that there will be financial repression. We need to inflate things away. But then does that mean real wages are negative? 
if real wages are negative because you have a higher level of inflation to get rid of these debt levels, um, then you're not going to get the growth. So you need to kind of do the backhanders. It's, just, it's, it's a very, very difficult balancing act. I don't think there is a simple um, solution. I do think we do have a, we will have a severe recession in this adjustment period. But is that adjustment period right here, right now? Or are we still in the throes of the COVID adjustment and all the extremities that that created that are still working through? We were slowing down before COVID. The global economy was slowing down into what was probably going to be a common or garden uh, recession. Then it was supercharged because of this exogenous shock, creating all these, these, all these externalities uh, have created these um, exaggerations on almost everything. I think from here, we are going to shift towards a more um, inflationary-based environment, but technology is still there, absolutely. But the whole greenification, carbonization stuff, that's a constraint that is going to be with us for decades to come. But even with that, we know that we've been through periods with high commodity prices before, which don't necessarily translate into significantly higher CPI. Middle of the 2000s, you had WTI at $150. Just that for inflation today, it was a lot higher. CPI got just above 5% at that absolute peak. In the early 2010s, you had oil at $100 for a long period of time with CPI bumbling along around 2 3%. So I think it's... I think it's one of these things where we all want things to happen right here, right now. I think these things will happen at a glacial pace. But I do feel that base effects could see us go into a deflationary environment for a short while. I, we go negative on CPI, which we don't do very often. But I think we'll bounce back to something which is going to motor along at a higher level than we've been used to as our base case for the previous 10 years. Um, and I think that means that cyclical stocks, cyclicality in things like GDP, so more volatility in macro data is going to be with us. And those sort of 10, 12 year, gentle, lovely, happy day expansions, which created an inequality um, increase. I think those are now probably a thing of the past. So that's your longer term view. Uh, what about your, your shorter term view? I know that you have some actual trade ideas, uh, which of course are not investment advice that, that, that you might be willing to share with, with me and, and my audience. And, and also how does that uh, jive with your, general level of uh, macro openness about what the future could hold. It could be soft landing, could be steep recession. You know, if I knew for 100% certainty that we were going to plunge into a recession, it's, it's obvious, you know, buy all bonds across the curve, uh, short stocks, short, short commodities. You know, likewise, yeah. if you were to transplant uh, and do a time travel back to March or April of 2020, we knew a huge reflationary boom was ahead of us. The trades are obvious. But with uh, the future uncertain, but this particular uh, future, you know, very uncertain to, to, to both of us, uh, I mean, what, what, what do you do? Yeah, I mean, God, I'm a, I'm a lily-livered liberal type person on this one where I kind of would love to sit on the fence, but I think there are things that we can do. So the first one is, let's say you've been lucky enough um, to be long over the most recent bounce or you've been playing um, some of the rebound that we've had. So let's just say that that was lucky. Um, and even if you're sitting on cash because you've been out, you felt that there is a recession coming, Rather than piling back into the market, what we can do right now is go into the options market because index option volatility has been dropping. For instance, on the FTSE, which is the world's dullest market, so fair enough, it should be, we've got uh, volatility, upside volatility at 11%, so 11 vol. Remember, the VIX has been 20, 25. The VIX has dropped down below 20 now. 
And so upside on the S&P, even that is around 15 vol. Now, to put that in perspective, the S&P moves on a 15 vol and it costs a 15 vol. So that's fair value. The FTSE moves on a sort of 9, 10 vol and it costs 12, 13. So actually the FTSE might not look like the best trade, but the point being here is that if you're long, you can sell out of your stock position, buy a call at a relatively attractive level. And if the market rallies, you're going to participate. You're not going to get all of it, but you participate. If things roll over, you will lose your premium and buying a call and holding cash is actually a better risk reward than holding the equity and buying a put because puts in equity land are generally, so a 5% put is nearly always on an index more expensive than the 5% call equivalent. So buying a 5% out of the money call relative to buying a 5% out of the money put against a stock holding, that call looks like slightly better. So I think we're getting to those sorts of levels in index volatility, which look attractive. Um, if you believe in the reflation trade, silver looks very interesting here. It's been in a two-year downtrending channel. The top of that channel is currently at 25. Again, I'm not an expert here, but if we can break 25, I think we can squeeze higher. And gold's getting up back towards that 2,000 level as well. So where one goes, the other tends to go. Volatility, again, is has come in on both gold and, and uh, silver. I personally wouldn't be a buyer of silver at... 25 because it could fail and the bottom of that channel is down at 17. So that's not great risk reward. But buying calls for a breakout, I think, is getting quite attractive. Now, if you don't want to pay all that vol, you might want to buy a call spread on silver. But that's reflation trade where um, there are some other factors coming in. Again, I'm not a commodities expert, but silver, well, let's go copper has some issues in Peru, something that uh, Jacob's been talking about. He's been long copper because Peru has got some big issues. There are some big social unrest, which could see some of the copper mines coming under duress, one of the bigger um, output stories there coming under significant duress. And silver is obviously a byproduct of a lot of those things. So there could be tightness short term, as well as this potential for a reflation story coming through. But I wouldn't bet the house on it. These are not trades that I would put on myself right here, right now, because I think they're going to work. They are ones where if you believe in reflation, I'd look at silver. If you are nervous but want to play equities, buy some calls because index volatility has come to levels which is attractive in terms of absolute level, even though it might not be cheap relative to what the indices are doing. Um, and then, you know, the one thing I'm looking at is I'm looking at Korea, as I said, to China. If Korea doesn't start outperforming pretty soon, then I think we have to maybe be a little bit cautious about how far that reflation trade really goes based on China. I don't think China is going to be the big stimulus opportunity that um, we all hoped for. And Korea currently is telling me that, yes, it's broken out in absolute terms, but in relative terms, it's still struggling. So I'll be looking at those. And then I guess the other thing finally is, if you want to hedge, we've had the big pullback in the dollar. Um, I think it could be a little bit, maybe a little bit more. But what was interesting is, we all thought Jay Powell was maybe a little bit more dovish, but everyone else has become a little bit dovish. Maybe another couple of points on the DXY and you've got the 62% retracement from the high. I'd be nibbling away at buying some upside because still the big thing here is even if the dollar doesn't make it back to the highs, even if it only retraces 50% of the pullback that we've seen, that's still a tightening of conditions that would see a lot of things roll over. So you know, those, that, those are conflicting trades, being long silver and being long the dollar. But you kind of want to have those potential wings on, oh, it could be reflation, or oh, it could actually be coming to the end of the breakout. 
So no, they're not great. They're not great trade recommendations where you should rush out and put them on. But what I'm saying here is that these are all plausible. Um, I would love to be able to say with absolute certainty one or the other. I feel that the recession is there. I feel that the pivot that we're seeing in fixed income markets is wrong. I think that we will go up in rates and I think we'll flatline. And the only reason I change that is if we start to see unemployment coming in right here, right now with revisions. And we saw it, you know, we can might see it anecdotally, but 10,000 job losses at Amazon or Google or Apple, that's not changing the dial on the true unemployment picture yet. And initial jobless claims, they're normally a little bit more leading because they're fast twitch. They're not doing it either. So I just can't see that recessionary story kicking in properly until we get a big, big uptick in those or big revisions in some of the old numbers on, on unemployment. Right. So gold has uh, been, been leading higher. You think silver could get carried because of the vol buying uh, options on uh, silver would be attractive again, you know, for, for, for my audience who are experienced in, in, you know, trading options, uh, that sounds interesting. Uh, as someone who has paid the tuition of, of in the options market, you know, if, if someone has never traded an option before, they probably, like me, will have to pay their tuition. Um, and okay, so you're looking at Korea as as a, as a sign of whether the reflation from China is going to be real. Jacob's got copper. That that's interesting. What are you thinking about uh, oil? And what are you thinking about uh, uh, bonds, like the ten year, let's say, treasuries? So. Yeah, so so bonds, I, I, I thought that we still had more upside in the two-year because I think that if they go to 5% and or 5.25%, we're currently at 4 point, well, we're now down close to 4% on the two-year, but we were at 42 a couple of days ago. Um, but if they plateau, eventually what markets do is they eventually look in the rearview mirror and go, oh, we've got to 5% and we plateau, therefore we can't still be at 42 on the two-year. We have to sort of ease back up um, because if we don't get that, sudden recession. I think there's that risk. And even if we do get the recession, you know, how much more downside is there in that two-year yield from 4%? Yeah, it might drop to three and a half unless we get a very, very deep recession. If we get a very, very deep recession, then equities are way, way overpriced. So for me, it feels like bonds at the moment are, um, bonds themselves, I think, I think the J-PAL will eventually have to push rates a little bit higher to force the recession to make sure you cap um, inflation. So I feel that the, the story on bonds is either, you know, can you play one against the other? Can you be long equities and long bonds? Well, I think that it's a case that equities have significant downside if bonds have significant upside. Because equities right now have seen a multiple compression based on interest rates going higher, but no more than that. They're not really pricing in a true, true recession. So bonds, yeah, I, I don't see a significant downside in yield unless we get this rapid turnaround in unemployment. And just to point on that, you know, in every single recession, unemployment has gone up two, three, four um, points. And we've always had a significant tradable low during every single recession. Some of them were quite shallow. I think 1982 was quite shallow. 1991 was quite shallow. But since 1950, every single recession, a major low. And why is that? It's because you lose your job, you have insecurity, you liquidate your portfolio. And that's why you always get liquidation and redemption lows into a recession. Everyone talks about active managers sitting on cash. It's like, yeah, they've been expecting the redemptions that haven't arrived because no one's unemployed. So they've got the 6% of cash maxed out, waiting for the redemption so they can pay them in the cash they've got. 
what you get in recessions, true recessions, is you've paid out your 6% and now you're forced into selling because the redemptions and liquidations come through. And that's when you get all the gating going on. But if I haven't lost my job, I don't have my fear. My 401k is still a positive influence on the equity market. So you get a tradable low when you get a recession, but you only get a recession when you get unemployment ticking up and significantly. And, you know, it's normally halfway through to or towards the end of the recession that you get those lows. So no recession, bonds can't go, bond yields can't go lower. Recession coming needs to happen sooner rather than later. In terms of oil, um, again, recession, no recession, but... Oil is the one that is most adjustable. You know, OPEC cut, and if things start to um, you know things start to pick up and oil prices go up, they can open it a little bit more. China should come on because services, particularly you know, airlines, we've seen airline volumes have now got back to pretty much where they were. But I'm not overtly wor- worried about oil. I think that the asymmetric risk is that if we believe a recession comes in the second half, there is more asymmetric risk to the downside than there is supply risk to the upside. But the SPR in the US got wound down to historically, relatively historically low levels. Um, there can, there are, again, some supply issues in there, but I think that the oil market can deal with it because it is the most fungible one out there. So oil, you know, oil has done its sort of ringing the bell thing last year. Um, I think that risk is that recession still probably sometime in H2, which will see oil going down. And that's the thing with all commodities. Longer term, I'm a bull, but short-term recession risk nearly always trumps longer-term tailwinds so that if someone told me there's going to be a big recession in H1, I'd be waiting to buy commodities. Jacob would say, oh, you can't do that. You've got to look at these geopolitical issues like Peru and pick your moments, which yeah, I agree with. But if I'm thinking if I had to buy things for 30 years, put them away like commodities because of the greenification, I would want to probably look for the next recession to get into that rather than do it now. Uh, right, that that makes sense. Uh, I uh, a thought that you know uh, I heard recently from from Mike Green is a, about the unemployment um, and why it's so low. Is that you said uh, people getting laid off from uh, Apple, Amazon, Google, they that won't take at the unemployment rate. And and Mike's point was that they, they're not even going to go on unemployment because they were you know paid at such a high level. They probably don't even know how to go on unemployment, so that's not going to appear in the the data. So there could be a rather large backlog of people who are unemployed who are, are, are not applying for that. It's the, the US system is is a little bit of a quirk in that you know global unemployment rates, OECD unemployment rates reached rock bottom levels um, I think last year. Now the US in theory, because I think what is it effectively 48 weeks you get paid and then you drop out of the, the system. So effectively once everybody who's unemployed has gone beyond the time that they can claim, eventually unemployment could go to zero with the participation rate dropping, i.e. people dropping out of the workforce, which is a quirk more of the US system. In the UK, I could become unemployed and claim benefits for the rest of my life. And, and I'd still be in those figures. But we haven't seen meaningful upticks in European or in global unemployment figures either. So it's not just in the US. And yes, I think there are these distortions. And Yes, I think people are not going to sign on, as we call it in the UK. I don't know if it's the same in the US. Um, the, but you know, with things like immigration or post-COVID, immigration has not got back to normal yet. The fluidity of the market is not there. And there are things that there's been hoarding of jobs. I don't think these are great jobs. It's not, as I say, I don't think this is a strong labour market. It's tight in terms of low unemployment. But I don't think there is this incredible pricing power from the labor that's out there. So this is why I think it's been 
it's a difficult one to call. It feels like it should be moving. We're starting to see challenger job cuts coming through. But none of this is at the sort of pace that's commensurate with we go into recession in the next two months. It's commensurate with the pace where it needs to pick up to go into recession in H2. Um, unless we get some massive revisions because the, you know, the, what is it, the BLS or whatever they're called was so out of whack that they went, oh, you know, we just found a million unemployed that we hadn't got in our numbers. But um, I think Bob Elliott um, recently sort of said, yeah, actually, it is still tight. We've looked at all these numbers and, yeah, it's going to still take a while for all this to properly f- f- feed through into really, truly higher unemployment levels. It goes through four, gets to five. And that's when you get that's when you get your bond yields down and you get the to bonds up and you get equities down into a tradable low. Very generous with your time. I've, I've got two more questions. But yeah, first, I want to say um, that, you know, it's been great having you on. Uh, I want to you know, let people know about your Twitter account, which I, I think is official or, or unofficial. And then, yeah, your, your content on, on Real Vision Pro uh, remains my favorite content on Real Vision and, and content I, I still watch. Uh, Real Vision Pro is, is expensive, but um, it is very, very good. Um, and then, yeah, I, I look forward to checking out your, your research product um, at, at Lycaon. So, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess you, you earlier said the word gating. Uh, I, refer, I think referring to hedge funds or investment management funds, I could not help but think about private equity and Blackstone, uh, and I think another private equity shop, which now they're real estate shops as well. They do everything, um, which halted the withdrawals, which is legal. I mean, the clients sign on to it, uh, so you, you can't you can't get your money. You have to wait until the the, the next uh, a session. How I just hear a lot of people say the risk is not within the banking sector. Uh, it's moved offshore. It's, it's, it's within the private equity world, the private debt world. What do you think about this? How severe do you think uh, the risks within they are? And are how, how, how do you compare them to the banking world? Yeah, I think you know, we saw this with that little spat with the Bank of England in that um, banks were forced to take less risk. Um, they had charges. You know, one of the reasons why we saw a big move in bond yields in 2019 was that a lot of banks were forced to move out of loans into bonds because of regulatory costs. And so that dro- drove demand for bonds and yields went down. So banks have fundamentally changed their model and are less risky beast than they were 10, 15 years ago. And what you saw is that um, shadow banks, i.e. Things that looked a bit like banks, but weren't banks. Things that looked a bit like hedge funds, but acted more like banks now have taken on a lot of, a lot of that risk. So there is a lot of concentration risk in um, the private equity world and in the asset management world. Um, and I think that, you know, with the private equity, what we have seen is the public markets have repriced and the private markets don't want to reprice. And the best way to not reprice is to make sure no one sells anything to find a price. So you gate. So that's what a lot of the gating feels like it is. It's like, well, if we gate it, we don't have to mark to market 20, 30% below where we currently have it. So let's prevent that. So you can, it, it kind of goes through, yes, you can ride that out, but there's going to be, you know, how, how long can you do that? And again, we've been used to markets sell off, economies collapse, and then they rebound very, very quickly. But what if we don't have that same down and up uh, function? And then the other element to all of this as well, which is you hear more and more about this now with all these very, very short dated options. Um, you know, one same day options expiry, one day to expiry, no days to expiry options. Someone takes the other side of those. And most of the time, the person taking the other side is going to win. So sellers of options win hands down on average all the time. But this is the sort of, you know, the risk of the steamroller thing. 
every now and again, something, some market dislocation is going to happen, which means that you take one of those players out, like we saw with the it was XIV ETF in 2018, went from whatever value it was to zero. That's a risk as well. So you've got these pockets of risks where, you know, at the moment, the uh, market makers who are a few big houses, particularly in the US, taking to the side of institutions primarily, rather than retail doing these one day or no day to um, uh, uh, expiry options, they generally are winning. But then there could be one of those market dislocations where you could wipe out one or a couple of those uh, players. And that would see liquidity problems coming into the market. Um, that's very much a risk. And I think this is a risk across the board is that if we get one or two of the sort of bigger institutions or bigger brokers, et cetera, market makers within these uh, markets getting hit, then the liquidity, which is always there when you kind of don't really need it on the way up, but really need it on the way down, it disappears. We could have those. We've not had a real liquidity crisis yet. The last one was obviously COVID and that was uh, dealt with very, very um, relatively efficiently in, in reality. But it's always a concern. And I do think it is very much more within the asset management community because the banks had to let that go. They had to, they were forced to get rid of it. And they still have charges, which, you know, if your uh, GSIB um, can't, can't be allowed to fail, your GSIB bank, you have these charges. So, yeah, it's, it's a risk. And what happened in uh, the end of last year when the gilt market blew up is it was the asset managers but also the banks that were hedging those asset managers or had the other side of those hedges who thought they might see those hedges disappear and have a massive hole in their balance sheets. Yes, there is always risk with banks because they are the other side of a lot of these positions. But ultimately, it was with the, the sort of the pension funds and the asset managers running the pension funds where those risks particularly lie today. Mm. Uh, thanks, Roger. My, my final question for, for you is about the actual recession and the middle and end of the recession. We've talked a lot about the timing of the recession and perhaps how the, the economy would enter a recession, the beginning of the recession. But what do you think the recession will actually be like? Uh, how long do you think it will last? And what will the, the uh, coming out of the recession look like? Um, you know, I know the 2008 great financial crisis, which you know, for me uh, was, was, was formative, was one in which uh, it was a financial sector. So ev everything collapsed all at once just because everything was, was so levered and, and people were getting kicked out of their homes. But it, it's you know, my understanding that historically recessions are kind of much more, a little bit of a slow burn. So you know, what, what do you think that the, the flavor of the recession will be and what will be the, the exit of that look like and how long will it last? Yeah, so I think it's, I think this is not the one, I don't think this is going to be the big one yet. Um, I do think we're going to see more insolvencies because as we roll into those um, higher interest rates, higher funding costs for some fund, some companies, the zombie companies that have been you know, kept going because you're at zero, I think we'll get those insolvencies. But I also think this is one of those ones where, as I said, it's been a sort of a rolling recession so far. And I think what's interesting is that I doubt we're going to get that correlation event that we saw. Well, we won't get the correlation event that we saw in 2008 because it was a policy error with Lehman, effectively, we now know, that caused a really big correlation event. Um, there's always the debt issues. And you know, most people are still worried that the level of debt is going to cause defaults of a major scale. I think what we get here is, and this is in some ways the exciting thing, is that when we're looking at recessions, we're always thinking doom and gloom, the downside. And yes, that's always right. We always want to be hedged on that downside. But think about where we are today. Um, I can actually get an interest rate. You know, I can get a yield on a funding, you know, a money market account for the first time in a long time. 
I can actually get a rate of return. Yes, it might be still negative because currently inflation is still high, but I can get that. We've seen bonds sell off. Now, they might not have sold off the whole way they need to, but they've sold off from levels that were ridiculous. It's not that we're at ridiculous low levels now of bonds. It's that we were stupidly high bond prices and stupidly low yields before. That provides opportunity. If we are right that this is becoming, you know, if we see GDP becoming a little bit more cyclical, a bit more volatility in GDP, shorter cycles rather than 10, 11, 12-year cycles, then we're going to have much more opportunity for trading. So it becomes less a convergence on a single trade, which was buy tech, buy bonds, and much more a good quality tech, yes. If bonds don't you know, go into another big, steep decline in yields, which I don't think they will, then there's going to be some great cyclicals out there. Um, there's going to be some good emerging markets. Everyone loves the emerging markets. That's a big consensus at the moment. The big key to make here, difference here is that in 2000, 2001 really to 2008, with China on board, it was buy any emerging market, give them a great acronym and stuff your pockets. And they all went up and everyone poured money to the MSCI emerging markets. Everything went up. Today, I think it's going to be that market will do well. That one might not. That one looks really exciting. So this is a story about divergence, divergent opportunities, uh, far more opportunities in far more pockets, different regions, different segments, different sections. So it's to me, this will be a an environment where there will be some great buying opportunities, but we'll we'll probably have to pick them. And I want to buy some emerging markets, but I feel that the phoenix rises from the ashes. We haven't had the ashes yet. You don't get tend to get the change in leadership um, into the low. It t- tends to happen coming out. And, you know, the emerging markets um, in uh, 2000, they kicked in really in 2001. Korea sold off first, 2000 to 2001, and then started rallying out of there once China kicked in WTO. And I think that's that's what we've got to look for. So keep your powder dry. There's no shame in having cash. At least cash today, you might get 5% in a money market fund. Yeah, negative real rate, I get that. But, you know, it's something which you can have. And if we do get the recession, I don't know, it's an opportunity cost. If I, if I miss out on the next six months of some you know, great upside, yes. But are you a trader? Are you a day trader? Are you a swing trader? Or are you an investor? Are you looking long-term? If you're looking long-term, I'd say, have some cash ready. Maybe buy some of those calls if you're just worried that the upside gets away from you, those cheap calls. Have your cash ready because I think there will be those buying opportunities down the road because the Fed may well have to tighten more, plateau, and then go, oh, those financial conditions have loosened, things are picking up again. We've got to tighten and create the recession that we haven't created so far. And then you, you, pick, your, you pick your poison coming out of recession rather than trying to catch the falling knife going in. Hmm. There we go. Roger, thank you so much for coming on Forward Guidance, sharing your insights. Uh, thank you, everyone, for watching. Um, by the way, I want to also thank, uh, I think, this uh, sponsor, new sponsor, public.com, which actually has a, a new program where you talked about uh, 5% yield. People can actually buy treasury bills uh, directly. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm really excited about that sponsor. So people, people should check that out. Uh, Roger, you do have a Twitter, right? But you don't post that much. Would would you be willing to share that with us, or is that I private? do have a Twitter? I, I'm yes. I um, no, no. I would, and this, I, I can't remember it. It's, it's terrible because I kind of go on it, but I sort of just go on and do it. So yes, I do have Twitter. I don't have many followers, justifiably so so far. I will try and put some stuff on there because what I try and do is, look, I think the most important thing is a framework. A trade idea is valuable to one in ten people, and I had twenty five years of doing this. But a framework is valuable to whether you're a day trader or a long-term investor. 
if you have a framework and you can put your own you know, time horizon personality into that, that's great. So what I try and do is I don't try and say, this is what's going to happen. What I try and do is say, these are things I'm thinking about. That's a risk. This is a risk. I'm going to start doing more of that. I get I, my ear from Tim at Likey and he's like, oh, you've got to do this. So I will um, start building that. But it's slow burning at the moment. I'm, I'm sort of slowly trying to get from once every decade into once a week, once a day. And hopefully it'll be useful. But you know, there's not going to be the silver spoon of that's a trade. Go off and make loads of money. Um, that's just not going to happen. What I'm going to be doing is saying, look, this is interesting. That could be a risk. Look what's happening in Korea. China's not creating the, the buzz that it, perhaps it should have. Maybe maybe we've gone too far on certain commodities. That's the sort of thing I'll be doing. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, a, a trade often attached just to a narrative. And narratives sometimes are, are correct, but people sh shouldn't uh, always be searching for a narrative. They, they shouldn't be looking for uh, some, you know, the narrative comes to, to you. And if you're convincing and you love it and you believe it, then then, then go with that. But, you know, I, I kind of, I, I like the China reopening, say, but I don't know if I love it, you know? And now I'm hearing you talk about Korea. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I, I don't love it. And, and I, I respect that about you, Roger, that you, uh, you're, you're, you're not committing to a narrative. And, and when facts change, you're sort of, you're changing your mind, which I, I think to be an investor, um, a successful investor is, is, is necessary. I mean, look, a perfect example of this is beginning of 2022, I came in saying, I think things are slowing down. I actually think that bond yields could actually stay relatively low, which was wrong. But at the same time, I said, however, although I think that we are going into a growth slowdown, which we actually did the first two quarters with negative growth, there was an inverse head and shoulders on the US 10-year yield. And I said, this is a big risk because if 175 breaks, it's going to go to 3.25. Obviously, it went further. My point being is that I was kind of thinking growth slowing. But here's a big risk. And I pointed this out to people. Wasn't I didn't say buy some puts on bonds. I said the risk is that bond yields go higher, bonds go lower if this breaks, but not my base case. And that's how I like to frame things is I'll tell you what my thoughts are, but I try and point out that there's a credible argument over here that this is a really best case scenario for bonds that you have to be absolutely aware of and hedge out. And that's kind of how I like to play it. Absolutely. And you know, pe people don't often like that uh, complexity. They want a simple uh, do this, do that. But I, I say I don't have a lot of macro certainty about, about you know, pretty much anything except one area is, I, and I think maybe you agree, um, is that the, if the Federal Reserve cuts in 2023, it will be because of a somewhat severe recession. They are not going to be throwing out breadcrumbs to the, to the bulls because because uh, the inflation um, unemployment is at three point five percent, but interest rates are too high. I could be wrong about that, but that's probably my my highest conviction view at this time. If 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 the Fed's cutting rates, I can't imagine they're going to get a raging equity bull market. They're going to be cutting rates because something has severely gone wrong very very quickly. Um, so yeah, I, I would I'd agree with that. There we go. Well, uh, Roger, thank you so much for sharing your time time and insights, uh, and thanks everyone for watching. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Check out today's sponsor, public.com at public.com slash forward guidance. That's public.com slash forward guidance. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.